Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, Jonathan Goldhill here. Welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today, I have two guests on my show. They are brothers and co-presidents of a fourth-generation, 111-year-old firm based out of the Boston, Massachusetts area, Grossman Marketing Group. They will tell you about it in a moment. Um, I met one of the speakers through another podcast called The Family of Business, and little background on both of them. David is a was in a tech startup in the marketing function be, uh, after he left Princeton. Um, and Ben went to business school at Columbia, worked in strategy consulting. They'll tell you more about themselves and, and their story about how they joined the business. So, guys, welcome to the show. Ben, you're on mute. There you go. Awesome. So, um, so let's start off. Uh, um, either Ben or David, you guys choose to uh, give our listeners a three-minute history of your company or less. Sure. Uh, Jonathan, th- first of all, thank you so much for having us. We're thrilled to be on the podcast and um, we're really looking forward to it. Um, so our company was founded in 1910 by our great-grandfather, Maxwell Grossman. Uh, Max was the youngest of nine children and emigrated here from a small town on the Russian-Romanian border. And uh, all he wanted in life was to educate his children and start a business and give back to the community. And so he was forced to leave school after the sixth grade. He shined shoes on the East Boston Ferry and then delivered envelopes uh, as, as a boy. And as he observed the envelope business, he realized that he thought he could do it better. So he started Massachusetts Envelope Company as a young man and grew Massachusetts Envelope Company into a significant player uh, in the in the Northeast for envelopes. Um, Over the years, um, his son, uh, Edgar, our grandfather, and his other son, Jerry, uh, came into the business. They took the business over from him and he decided he wanted to go into public service. So he left the company went down to Washington, D.C. during World War II and was a dollar a year man under FDR. (laughs) And our grandfather and great uncle took over the company. They grew it in the post-war era. And then our father uh, came into the business, um, came into the business as the third generation in the business. Our father grew the business tremendously, diversified the, the product offerings and was president of the company for 35 years. Uh, until he left the company to go into public service and he became treasurer of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And as Ben and I like to say, the greatest succession plan money can't buy is 1.1 million votes. (laughs) Well, um, interesting history of going into public service in your family. So um, fascinating story. Good thing it's still not in the envelope business. Is I don't know the last time I even got an envelope that I sent out or p- a piece of mail with. So, um, um, so uh, Ben, introduce yourself and tell us like, uh, well, tell us a little bit about what the company is today, Ben. Why don't we just start there? Jonathan, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. We love your podcast and the content you share, especially for folks in the next generation. 
of businesses is highly relevant and certainly content that I wish had, had been available when I joined the business 15 years ago. So today, Grossman Marketing Group, uh, we are an integrated marketing services company. The vast majority of our revenue today comes from swag, branded merchandise, like the shirt you're wearing. Uh, we work with very large companies, uh, both domestic and international, uh, supporting their enterprise sales efforts, HR functions, et cetera. Uh, we run distribution centers around uh, the globe as well, fulfilling those programs. Uh, we develop e-commerce programs and websites. We still do plenty of print and direct mail and envelope products, but over time, so much more of our growth has come from tech-enabled services. And um, a significant uh, sort of channel for our growth has been through acquisition and M&A, which we'd be happy to talk about. Interesting. So who's the historian in this uh, family business, or are, are all of you guys? And that's the first simple question. And so did each generation of family members um, introduce some kind of disruption to the business business model, like, you know, whether it's just geographic expansions or product extensions or, you know, wholesale re-envisions. Uh, so so to whoever the historian here is in the family, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, we neither of us are truly the family historians. The family historian title goes to our aunt, Mary Ellen Grossman, who currently mm -hmm. serves as the treasurer of the company. But we'll we'll do the best we can. Um, so in the second generation, when our great grandfather basically handed the keys to our grandfather and great uncle, he basically said, boys, have at it. And Edgar and Jerry had a very good partnership. They called themselves Mr. Outside and Mr. Inside. Naturally. So basically, our Uncle Jerry would go out and would bring back a briefcase full of orders and would dump it out on our grandfather Edgar's desk. And Edgar would price everything, would get everything in the works and get everything moving. So they, they were really focused on growing the envelope business. And they did an incredible job to the point where Massachusetts Envelope Company uh, was the largest envelope company uh, in, in certainly in Massachusetts, if not in New England. Um, when our father came into the business, you know, he had been a Baker scholar at Harvard Business School. He had trained at Goldman Sachs under Bob Rubin and other luminaries. And he came into the business really looking at how he could take the already strong foundation and supercharge it. So he basically focused both on geographic diversification and on product diversification. So he almost immediately upon coming on board, he acquired three companies, three smaller envelope companies out of Connecticut, rolled them all into one and turned it into general business envelope, which was the largest envelope company in Connecticut and became a huge profit center for the company. Um, he then recognized all the way back in the nineties that envelopes were a mature business. And that if we wanted to survive and continue to grow, he would have to add on goods and services. So he bought a printing company, another printing company, a graphic design studio to sort of further position us upstream uh, along the deliverables. And he grew the business that way to the point where it was interesting to me to consider coming into the business, whereas it had never been interesting to me to hmm. think of coming in and selling envelopes. Right, of course. So, and then Ben, I know when you joined, uh, you brought some of your background and interest in M&A work, and you were just alluded to it a moment ago. You've made a number of acquisitions since joining the business. That's, that's a big part of the growth of the business today, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so we've had sort of twin sources of growth, both, both organic, just natural expansion of our brand and merchandise uh, business. But a couple years into uh, my tenure at the business, we made a significant investment in a in an e-commerce services company, uh, and that's been a huge source of growth. And at the at the end of the day, in 2021, every company is a technology company. We believe that through and through. We just made a significant investment internally and hired a new chief technology officer because we feel like 
um, if you're not focusing on technology and ad adapting to technological changes in your organization, you will get left behind. Um, in addition to the technology investment, yes, we have made a number of other acquisitions or strategic investments in other companies. So we've done about 10 deals in the last 10 years um, that we'd be happy to go into. And I will make one correction on the historical timeline that uh, David shared. And I have to be careful. He's my big brother and my older brother. Right. But he referred to Jerry as Mr. Outside and Edgar as Mr. Inside. And it was actually the opposite. Edgar was Mr. Outside. Our, our, our grandfather, Edgar, do, prided do, himself on being an amazing salesman. And, and um, you know, customer service has been sort of the North Star of our, of our business since its founding. And we really learned so many lessons about that from our, our grandfather, Edgar. Well, well uh, we're blessed memory. Duly, good, good, duly noted. Um, and we'll talk about your guys' role because you are co-presidents. And it's so common in a family business that someone either owns the outside, someone owns the inside, or someone owns finance, someone else owns marketing. And we're not big on titles in, in family businesses, but we, we sort of have to put them in place so that other people can understand, okay, well, who do we go to for what? So, so you guys are both like Ivy League educated. You were, you know, I think to listeners, they might, they might think like these guys were born with silver spoons in their mouth and, um, you know, the business was handed to them. So tell us a little bit about what your story was like, were you, how were you raised? Were you raised as children in the business? Did you, were you doing like teenage jobs, like summer jobs in the business? Um, and, or, or did you just have a completely different career path? So I know David, you didn't have any interest in the business you said until something, you know, till that event happened. So tell us a little bit, what was it like growing up with this successful family business? And, and by the way, also, Give listeners a sense of the size of the business because it sounds like with all these acquisitions, like you're north of a thousand employees and and north of a hundred million dollars, and that people might be thinking like, well, I can't relate to this. These guys are, you know, they're so successful, such a you know fourth generation, so many acquisitions. So, so I just rolled a lot of stuff into one. But David, go for it. Sure. Um, so while, while I wish we were a thousand plus employees <laughs> and hundred, hundred, hundred million dollar enterprise, um, we have about a hundred employees. Um, and we do, de depending on the year, we do somewhere between 35 and $40 million uh, worth of revenue. Um, so we're a, we're a good sized business, but we're, 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 we're very modestly sized. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, growing up, um, Growing up, our father and grandfather both worked very, very hard. Um, every Saturday morning, they would both be in the office. They would be writing up orders and quotes and getting them scheduled and, and all of that. And often Ben and I would be brought into the office with our dad. And some of my earliest memories are actually of me. And you, you see me now, I'm six and a half feet tall and 250 pounds. But back in the day, some of my earliest memories are of jumping from pallet to pallet to pallet out in the warehouse. And it was just a sea of stacked envelope pallets that were either waiting to be printed or about to be printed. So we were involved in the business just sort of, you know, in an observation uh, way. We sort of learned a little bit through osmosis, but um, I first worked in the business when I was during one of my summers in high school and I came into the business and it was our fledgling telemarketing division. And I was handed a giant printout of ice cold leads. And it was my job for the entire summer to go down and qualify those leads. Oh boy. And hand them off to actual salespeople to capitalize on those leads. It was, it was mind numbing work, but it also gave me an incredible appreciation for what it means to sit at your desk all day long from 8 AM to 5 PM and have a half hour for lunch. And yeah. uh, so I think it was, it was an invaluable experience, but in no way, shape or form were Ben and I uh, were Ben and I, working in the business every, you know, every summer growing up. You were not. 
We were not. Right. But you were, you know, but it was school of hard knocks. I mean, I broke my teeth on, you know, telemarketing and cold calling and it's, it's brutal, but it's a good way to learn what the term work means. And um, Ben, what was your experience like? Was it similar to David? Did you, did you have one of those summer uh, telemarketing jobs that you didn't, I didn't. I didn't have one of the summer telemarketing jobs, but I helped out at different times and administrative work and helping at the switchboard and and um, some other tasks. But what I do remember and what sticks out at me uh, from growing up and and our childhood are some of the lessons that we learned from our grandfather and from our dad and other family members, um, specifically around the importance of never letting business get in the way of sound and, and strong family relationships and a significant cautionary tale uh, up here in the Boston area in the late 80s and early 90s was legal seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, the Berkowitz family, very successful company, much bigger than us, uh, wonderful restaurant chain, um, significant wholesale business as well. But basically the patriarch of the family pitted his two sons against each other chose one of the brothers to t- take over one of his sons to take over the business and, and essentially toss the other one out. And it was covered um, deeply by the Boston Globe. And I remember sitting with our father and he actually had, he had torn out these articles about the story and he had sat down with the two of us and explained how as important as business is, we can never ever let something like this happened to our family because no matter what family is the most important thing. Well, so ben, those, I think, I think if, when you guys, when you guys get a pause and a break and want to come to Hollywood, we've got a story here with legal seafood. It's, it sounds like an episode of succession, but like real life down, you know, not like fancy Murdoch family kind of parable. So. Yeah, no. And I mean, of course there are other stories like that too, but th- those were the lessons that we learned in terms of, and your father really, he did, like, I credit your father and maybe his father's father or parents for creating that family, um, family first mindset. Um, because I think this is probably one of the keys to longevity in any family business is the family unit has to be healthy, has to be as functional as a family can be in order for a family business to survive and make decisions that are for the good of the family. We totally, we, we totally agree. And I mean, re- realistically, and I'm sorry I spoke over you, David, but I mean, I wouldn't have joined the business out of uh, business school if I hadn't wanted to be in business with my brother, David, and our dad at the time. Um, we have an incredibly strong relationship and our interests are, are very much aligned and we want the same thing. And that's why it works. Gotcha. So briefly, you each had a career prior to coming into this business. Um, you have another brother as well, who has a very successful career, I believe, at Goldman Sachs, who decided not to join the business and is making um, plenty of money in his career. Uh, and you guys are working hard at this business. So, what was it? Uh, what was considered when you guys joined this business? I mean. You probably had discussions around compensation and equity, and those are, can be thorny issues in a family. Um, I'm sure there's also the thoughts about here's our other brother, and you know, is he being offered the same thing? Or like, so roll some of that out, Ben. Ben, maybe you, you want to start on this one. Um, roll some of that out for what it was like for you. And, and maybe David, you can talk about yourself, but if you guys got together and also talked about, Hey, what about our other brother here? And what are we doing here? So our, our younger brother, Josh, uh, he's not at Goldman Sachs. He actually, um, he, he went to Harvard, went to McKinsey, and now he's in a, uh, you know, technology strategy, um, role at a significantly sized business and has, a world of opportunities in front of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has not been as interested in, in, in the business as, as we were, though we certainly um, tried to make him feel welcome in, in the organization uh, if, if he, so if he, ch- if he chose to do so. 
Um, when I was at Columbia Business School, I went into the into the MBA program thinking that there was a solid chance that I would come into work with with our family and join Gross and Marketing Group. And so I tried to look at everything through the lens of how could this learning in this class, how could this project help our company? But I still wanted to expose myself to other paths that were uh, very interesting to me. So I did a part-time internship for a venture capital firm in New York, uh, playing off some of the technology experience that I'd had um, at IBM prior to business school. I also did a summer program at Goldman Sachs in their investment management division. And I was fortunate enough to have an offer to go back there full time. And I know from talking to other next gen family business professionals that that negotiation with their father or their mother or grandparents or some other family member about what sort of compensation package they will get, it can be an awkward conversation. Luckily, when I had an offer to go back to Goldman Sachs, it made a subjective negotiation much more objective because I had data and I had a market value. And so when I was speaking to my father, our father, about potentially joining the business, I had a market value and it made the conversation very simple. And luckily we were able to reach an agreement and uh, it's, it's worked out to this day. I think David had a little bit of a different path so, and all that. So I want to get to David's, um, so David, hold that thought. But Ben, you did something you told, I heard about on another podcast with your class at Columbia, which is something any student who's listening to this ought to do the same if they have a family business. Um, I understand there was a, like we did it in my, when, it, when I was in business school, we had a research project that was out in the real world with a company. And you did what I consider to be one of the great exercises in walking around a company is we call it the start, stop, keep, or I think you call it the start, stop, continue, where you go around and interview uh, the management, the leaders, the executive team, and ask them, you know, what should the company start doing? What should it stop doing? What should it continue doing? And that was a really insightful project i understand that your 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 team at school did so there were two there were thank you uh jonathan really appreciate this so there were two projects that we're talking about when i was a second year at business school and i took a course called power and influence by professor frank flynn who's now a professor at stanford business school and what the project was was assessing the job that you were going to go into and how you could build power and influence and develop relationships in a large organization uh, in your next job. And so if you were going to do investment banking at JP Morgan, you would interview other folks who went into investment banking at JP Morgan to understand the kind of organization you were going into and how you could best succeed and enter the organization um, in, in a smooth and productive way. For me, it was a little bit different because I was joining a family business. So for my project, I actually interviewed uh, David, and I also interviewed two other alums of the business school uh, to try to get advice and of, of how I could properly enter the company um, and, and, and do it right. And so, for example, one of the most impactful pieces of advice I'd, I've ever gotten was try to find a way to generate revenue, revenue, sales, and gross profit. Why? Because you'll establish your credibility with folks in sales and folks inside, you will show that you are working to protect their job and the future of the company. And so no better way to establish your credibility than generating sales. hundred percent. And by the way, you know, I mean, in any organization, that's probably no, uh, probably one of the best ways, but certainly in a sales and marketing driven organization like your company, that's numero uno. Um, so fantastic. Good. Good Thank you. Yeah. No, and then, and then a, and a couple other the key points that that were brought up by other other family business professionals. One was learn, come in, learn the business cold because people are going to be watching you as you enter your family business. They want to know how the, that next generation is going to carry themselves. Are they going to shoot their mouths off, or are they going to be a student of the business? And so that that um, that person I spoke with said, learn the business cold. So when you speak up, you are right. 
Yes. And, and no entitlement and, zone here. Well, and, and, and related to entitlement was the third, the third sort of key point, the theme that was underscored to me was be really cognizant of how you carry yourself when you enter that business, when you enter the business, how you comport yourself and act with humility. And I try to be someone who acts with humility, but look, we're, we've, David and I have been very fortunate in our lives. We've gotten incredible opportunities. And as you said, privilege and how, how do you go into an organization and you try to act with humility, look people in the eye, treat them with respect, show them that you respect what they do in their contributions that got the business to that point at the time, but 95, 96 years, now we're in year 111. So those three sort of themes of generate sales to establish your credibility, learn the business cold, so people respect your knowledge of the organization, and three, act with humility. Those helped me ver enter the business in a very smooth and successful way. I love the humility piece because Pat Lencioni talks about in his book, The Ideal Team Player. The three attributes of any ideal team player is someone who's humble, hungry, and smart, like emotionally smart. Um, and you gentlemen both seem to embrace all three. Nobody wants to see entitled young brats coming up through the business, you know, going back to the succession sort of uh, HBO miniseries. Um, nobody wants to see that. Um, so, all right, David, tell us uh, your side of the, you know, joining the business, the compensation and equity, maybe conversations or, you know, what was considered in, in your decision? Sure. So um, I took a little bit of a different path than Ben. Uh, ben had gone to business school. I, when I graduated from Princeton, I moved to New York. I was living with my best friends uh, in New York and I was working in marketing and development and then uh, working for a tech startup. And I really wasn't happy at the tech startup and was looking for something new. And I, I called up my dad one day and I said, dad, I, I've got the idea. He said, what is it? I said, I want to go to work at Goldman Sachs. There was dead silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> I said, dad, are you, you there? And he said, David, are you on drugs? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, you are so not an investment banker. He said, that's not who you are and that's not a role that I think you would thrive in. He said, but have you given any thought to the business? I said, what, what business are you talking about? <laughs> he said, ha ha, no, have you given any thought to the business? And I said, no, I haven't given any thought to it. I'm really not interested. He said, okay, well, just think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it would be important to me to be the first member of the fourth generation to lead the company into and through its hundredth anniversary. Uh, so I talked to my fiance at the time, who is now my wife, uh, and said, how would you feel about moving up to Boston? And uh, the, the rest is history. But I came into the business at age 24. Um, I didn't know anything about the business as it was constituted at the time. Um, so my father said, all right, I want you to start out in customer service. When you're in customer service, you will learn the business cold. You'll know how to quote. You'll know how to schedule. You'll know how to you'll you'll, you'll know how to interact with the customers and with production and everything. So I started in customer service, and I was very fortunate to have a gentleman who really took me under his wing, and he taught me the printing business cold. And uh, from from that. From that point, as I grew in my customer service role and obviously had an affinity for it, um, at, my father said, gee, you should try sales. So I moved into sales and I was very successful salesperson. Um, and I think it was really because my colleague Mike had taken me under his wing and had really taught me the ins and outs of the printing business. So when I got in front of a customer to talk to them about a project, I actually knew what I was talking about. From a compensation standpoint, because I came in at 24 years old with no experience in the business, I was at the absolute bottom of the compensation scale. Um, so, you know, we have a compensation scale and I was literally at the bottom of it. Um, Must be tough for a Princeton grad to come into a customer service job making uh you know, a, a pretty low wage compared to what your, you know, 
college grad friends were making in New York City, no less. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my my friends who were investment bankers and management consultants, they were making significantly more money than I was. But it was it was fascinating to me, and it was really interesting. I mean, here I was working side by side with people who I had known for my entire life, mm-hmm. but standing on my own two feet. I wasn't just, oh, here's David, we're gonna go out and get a sandwich together at lunch. But it was, wow, here's David. He's a fantastic salesperson. He's a fantastic customer service person. And he's clearly going to be the future of this business. And that that was really meaningful to me. Um, from a compensation standpoint, sort of compensation growth and advocacy standpoint, um, it was not always easy to get my father, because at the end of the day, my father was the one who decided what my compensation was going to look like for the next year. And it was not always easy getting him to agree to the compensation increases that I thought I should be getting. Um, So that's why being a successful salesperson is really important because I could go to him with my sales figures and say, gosh, if I were a commissioned salesperson, I would be bringing home this, which is, 50% 50% more than I'm making right now. So I would like you to reconsider my compensation. Gotcha. So, uh, so it was, um, it, it was, it was not always easy to negotiate that, but I always sort of had my eye on the prize that if I did what I was supposed to do, I would end up getting equity in the company. And right. that really would. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And that really was, was what I, what I wanted. So, Four years into the process, I sat down at breakfast with my dad, and I had gone through a whole exercise of speaking with our tax advisors and our estate planning attorneys and establishing what our my parents' lifetime gift tax exemption was, how much had been used thus far, therefore, how much could they allocate towards a transfer of equity to me and still have an equitable amount for my brother Ben if he was coming into the business and then also take into consideration our brother Josh at, at some point in the future. So I worked with those with those advisors and I came up with a memo that outlined a a a, a transfer of equity to get me to a certain percentage point that I knew my father would be comfortable with. And he looked at it and I could tell he was sort of surprised that I had put so much thought into it. Um, And uh, he said, you're on. He said, let's do it. Well, that's a great story. It's a good thing he didn't turn the tables on you and say, what business, David? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so that's good. And look, that's oftentimes a power struggle in a lot of families is to wrestle that equity, and maybe more importantly, control, decision-making control. So um, so what changed in the decision-making uh, at that point? Like, did was were bylaws rewritten so that there was, you know, voting shares that came with that? Or did voting, you know, did you guys ever formalize that in terms of, hey, now we have two voices and you're one voice. And so it's, you know, majority rules. I mean, how did that, you know, that baton handoff happened? What did that look like? Sure. So um, at the time, 100% of our stock was voting. Okay. Um, so we basically had uh, had voting in direct percentage to our ownership. To, to the ownership. Okay. Um, so it wasn't something where if Ben and I ganged up on our father, we could override him. Um, you know, we just, we've always had, and I think it's been, whether it was with our dad and the two of us, or now with the two of us, we always look at each other and say, who is this most important to? And what is driving the decision? And if somebody else who is at the, at the table to make a decision really feels strongly about something, we don't let it get contentious ever. I mean, Ben and I have been running this company now, the two of us for 11 years. We have never had an argument about um, about about a decision that one of us was in favor of and one of us wasn't. We always sit down, look at each other in the eye and say, all right, why do you feel this way? Tell me why you feel this way. 
I'm going to tell you why I feel this way. And we always, we, we've always managed to work it out because we know, as Ben mentioned before, we want our interests to always be aligned because that is the sacrosanct principle that our family has always operated from in this business. Well, I mean, it's so great to hear that. I, I don't know why I always attract the healthy, functional families. It's the, dis, the unhealthy, dysfunctional families are so difficult to deal with. I, and I have to actually, I will be talking about that in my next podcast with a, a family that had unhealthy, dysfunctional uh, decision-making. So, so you guys don't really have any stress or not stress. You don't have conflict that you can't get through. That's contentious. And there isn't this artificial harmony where it's, you know, fake, where we just, you know, step stuff is less left undiscussed. So, um, Many people have probably challenged you in the past, guys like myself, for being co-presidents of an organization and saying, you know, how can you do that? And so how do you guys do it? Is it, you know, one person's outside, one person's inside? Is it, um, they, Ben, you're more on the financial transaction, M&A deals, and David, you're more on customer-facing type, you know, uh, and, pr and production stuff? I mean, how does that, how does that work? Ben, you want to address that? It, thank you. Uh, it works because our skills are very complementary. At, at the base of it, David and I, we are we our focus is on the same thing. We are completely aligned in that we want to build a strong business, uh, have flexibility to be able to be present in our kids' lives and our families' lives, um, and give something back to the community and create an environment in the organization where we try to create a safe space for people, where we have people's backs, where we want to provide people pathways to career development and pathways to feeling like they can be their true selves. That's really important to us. And so for us, for, for David and I, the, I would not have joined the business 15 years ago if I didn't feel like we would have alignment long-term. We've always been very close. Um, and look, we give credit to our parents and to our grandparents and to other members of the family for teaching us the right values. Um, so that, that certainly helped. But um, in, terms of, in terms of handling our day-to-day -day jobs, it is a sales-driven organization. We both are responsible for business development and sales as well. But in addition, we, we focus on different uh, things. So I generally manage the uh, M&A process. So, you know, sourcing transactions and uh, doing the financial analysis in partnership with David. I mean, David's part of all those conversations, been part of, he reviews all of the numbers. I generally bring him the numbers that, that I analyze with our CFO and then come to him with sort of uh, my thoughts and get and want to get his way, you know, him to weigh in and buy in and have him do a sanity check. Uh, because David again sees things through a different lens. Um, I've, you know, I tend to be a little bit more involved in some of the technology facets of our business, whereas David tends to be a little more creative, a little more hands-on. Um, you know, he he rose up through the client service ranks, so generally the creative studio of the business, the client service delivery pieces of the business, all sort of more reported into David. So, but at the base of it, we still are responsible for you know, to keeping the revenue strong and the business going. It was interesting when we took over the business from our dad. So he, when he decided to run for state treasurer of Massachusetts in 20, he, the election was 2010, but he decided to run in 2009. And he took a step back at the beginning of 2010 and became chairman. And David and I became co-presidents of the business. Mm. And then once our dad um, once he was elected and David said, you know, got over a million votes. And I think it was actually 1.2 million votes. Um, and he was elected with, you know, bipartisan support and he wanted to take his knowledge of being a small businessman, um, and try to bring his talents to help in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts during the greatest financial crisis since the great depression, David and I wanted to build a an environment at our company where different viewpoints were welcome. Um, and so what we did, uh, Jonathan, you alluded to that start, stop, continue process that we embarked on. 
So typically when people do a start, stop, continue review of an employee, it's what can that person start doing that would be beneficial? What should they stop doing that's conduct that's detrimental? And what should they continue doing? That's work they do that and to reinforce the positives. And so we asked everyone in our company to do, um, we asked every person, whether or not they were in sales or client service, whether or not they ran a press or were in finance, in the graphic design group or drove a truck or any other function of our organization, we asked everyone, we gave everyone the same assignment and we asked them to start, stop, continue, review gross and marketing group. What should we start doing? Whether or not that might be new markets to enter or new new tools to leverage in our company. What should we stop doing? We wanted them to highlight things that they thought were detrimental to the company that maybe we don't know about. And then what should we continue doing? And what we wrote in the memo was after 101 years in business, we, we hope that we do something right. Smiley face. <laughs> um, right. And David and I, we had individual meetings with every employee in our company over a period of months because it took a while to sure. have all of these meetings. Yeah. And they were either all in person or for colleagues who were in remote environments, they were by phone. This was a little bit pre-Zoom, mm -hmm. um, pre-Teams. Um, and then what we did is we distilled down all of those learnings from all of those meetings into sort of a living, breathing business plan for the, for the 21st century. And what we told everyone, these were, two, these were three people meetings. It was David and I, and then a colleague, that anything they said in the meeting would be confidential, that it would never be attributed to them what they were saying, that we would take action on what they were sharing with us, but we would never quote them directly. And what we feel like why we did that is because the most important asset we have is our people, is our human capital. And we only see a small piece of our company every day. And we wanted to learn from them because we needed to be good listeners. And in addition, we wanted to make sure that people, that our colleagues felt like we, we saw them as, as individuals, we respected their opinion, and that we were actually going to take action. And so what we tried to do out of that is try to identify low-hanging fruit to take action and iterate quickly to show that the process was fruitful for, for people, that it was worth their time. And then some of those decisions brought us to new markets to enter or potential acquisitions to go after, uh, marketing initiatives to conduct for our company, things to potentially jettison or stop doing in our company. And what was amazing about that process is that some people who you'd never expect came in with four pages of single space notes and had clearly spent many hours in that project. I think that's such a valuable project and thank you for sharing that exercise in depth with listeners because this is something I'd recommend for any company um, at a right point in time to implement this exercise. Um, I want to get back to conflict a little bit. I know we're running short on time, but I think it's something that's really important. And, you know, we talk as business coaches about developing a healthy team first. And you guys have done an amazing job at that. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about how that's done, and maybe maybe an example of a, of a difficult decision, a challenge, a conflict, where you, the, you guys worked through it because you have a, a process around it. I mean, so, so what I'm sort of asking is, like, is there some values that you have put into place in the company that talk about, like, harmony and um, people getting along and, and – you know, constructive conflict, um, such that it's always up on the on the up and up, and it's always healthy in the way we the way it's dealt with. Like maybe there's a difficult decision that you guys recently dealt with, and you had to you were challenged uh, to figure out how are we going to work through this, and but you have some sort of guardrails around how we how we do that. Give you any thoughts on? on that, you know, maybe it ties into your core values that you've put in place. Uh, so that's a, a complicated question. I mean, when David and I, you know, we've never had an argument in 10 years, there might be things that we potentially disagree about. Um, and what we try to do is take a step back and understand what's the perspective of that other person? 
what are they thinking about? What are their priorities? Let's, you know, when we're, when we're running around. And, and that's have, a powerful framework, by the way, right there. Right. Right. And, and we were, we put yourself hard. in the other person's shoes. What, what is, where are they coming from? Who is the most important person in the room? What'd you say, David, that, who is this most important to um, either in the room or, you know, that should be involved in this conversation and what, what is their perspective on it or what might right. be their perspective on it? So we're, so what we've said, what we, what we, so what we try to do is we try to take a step back and understand what, what's going on. What is the situation that we're looking at? Why are we disagreeing? How are we going to handle this? Um, and you know, for some folks, we definitely recommend that they work with a third party advisor for these, especially if they get to a, a potential impasse uh, or a situation where they really can't get aligned. Luckily, David and I have never had that situation. We, we, we generally are able to work it out internally. And early on when we first became co-presidents, there were a few situations where a few colleagues tried to kind of play us off each other. They asked us about something. We gave, maybe I gave one answer. And then they went to the other, they went to David and almost tried to, it's almost yeah. like how kids go to parents. For, Absolutely. For, Draw, drive a wedge between the two of them, divide and separate and, you know, con- conquer. <laughs> right. And Power play. So, so our setup before we went largely remote uh, due to COVID, I am in our father's old office, which was our great uncle Jerry's old office. And David is in our grandfather Edgar's old office. And they're next to each other. And there is a cutout sliding glass window between the two offices and we when we were in the same office in the same building we would yell back and forth at each other dozens of times a day Mm. and so we tried although we see things differently and we operate differently we tried almost to have like a mind meld where we were on the same page and fully aware of what was going on and again little decisions we would just do we wouldn't have to consult the other but big decisions we have to be unanimous uh, that's really important. And not just unanimous, but also present a unified front to our stakeholders, to our colleagues. And that if we disagree, that is handled internally. And that once we come to an agreement on what we are actually going to do in those hard decisions, whether or not it's a personnel decision or resource allocation decision or something other, some other uh, you know, challenging situation, we only present one opinion from us and we speak as we, not I. And that is critical to being successful co-leaders of an organization. Co-leadership can be really uh, challenging for certain organizations and it's not recommended for all. Luckily, David and I complement each other well when we have different skill sets and we try to play to each other's strengths so that we maximize the value that each of us can bring to the organization. And it's not just maximize harmony, but create a better environment for our organization. Um, You know, David is much stronger at certain things than I am. And there are certain things that I do um, that may play to my strengths and it all works out well. Okay, David. And the, the important thing in, this is sort of something that not everybody believes but Ben and I have absolutely zero sibling rivalry. There is none. There is no sibling rivalry. Frankly, Ben's victories are my victories. My victories are Ben's victories. When Ben wins a great new client that's going to bring revenue into this business, it doesn't make me feel smaller. It makes me feel bigger because it's for the benefit of the organization. Similarly, if I have a big client win, it makes Ben feel great because he knows that we're both working towards the same end. And I think the co-presidency or the co-leadership of an organization only works without sibling rivalry. Because even if you can delineate roles and responsibilities, if one per- if there is sibling rivalry, if people are going to be made to feel small by the other co-leader's uh, accomplishments, it will never work. Well, I think we're going to end on that note. I was going to take you guys through my lightning round of my seven Ps to see which ones you guys had in place. 
those are purpose, plan, products, people, process, priorities, and performance. Um, I know you guys probably have most of this in place. Um, do you have, let's just, we'll go with one question. Do you guys, have you established a purpose, a why in your business? And is it widely communicated to everyone in the company? I, I wouldn't say that we have one purpose, um, but I mean, I'll, I'll start and David, David can finish and, and edit what I said. But um, for us, from a you know client perspective, it's sort of you know about service and innovation. But really, at the end of the day, it's all about listening, and it's listening to the marketplace, and it's listening to our customers, and it's listening to our colleagues. And we're not we're not perfect. I mean, we certainly make mistakes, and we we certainly there are situations where we might not handle HR situations correctly or um, a customer situation correctly. And frankly, there are certain uh, competitors who out outperform sometimes us. We're not perfect, but our dad has used this expression a lot that you are born with two ears and one mouth. And you should use them in that proportion. I think he yep. learned that from his father, Edgar, our grandfather. Yep. So it's really all about kind of listening. And I think David might have had something to, to add to that. All right, well. David, I'm going to cut you short because we're out of time and I've got another uh, podcast to get to. But folks, I want to just first, uh, Ben and David, I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, I want to underscore that healthy in a family business is about being able to work first on the family and then on the business. And I think that's what we've heard here today is how healthy you guys um, are as a family unit. And again, I think the the, the credit always goes to the, the, the generations before us who set that tone. And so I wanna thank you for sharing your story. And folks, uh, the, you'll be able to contact Ben and David through the show notes. Um, Grossman Marketing Group is the company and Disruptive Successor Show is the podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.